right, here we go. Live to the platform at 1.30, as promised, on Wednesday the 2nd of December. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Obviously, inquire at the website about that. Not here to talk about that right now, though. Here to talk about this announcement from Hyundai, which is pretty exciting. Fairly sad day. Unhappy overall, I'd say, if you are electric Jesus, though, because a proper car company is coming after you, apparently. At least that's how it seems to me. So anyway, Hyundai had this big online palaver with a YouTube whatever and you know, a bunch of experts, including Albert Bierman earlier today. And I sat through that. It's something of an endurance event, but the underlying message is quite exciting if you are one of these EV evangelists. And uh, just looking down, checking the stream and all of that kind of stuff, YouTube's telling me it's an excellent connection. Do let me know in the chat if something falls over, won't you? Anyway, just running through the headlines here, okay? And I'll show you some pictures as well for a little bit of context, although I won't be lip-syncing what you see on the screen. I'll just run through the headlines, and you can have a look at these pretty pictures. So let's try multitasking. Anyway, Hyundai has unveiled this thing. It's called the eGMP platform. It's the first dedicated battery electric vehicle platform for their next generation lineup of EVs, essentially. And these EVs are going to provide ranges of over 500 kilometres, they say, on a full charge, according to the WLTP cycle. And they can be charged up to 80% within 18 minutes through a high-speed charging process. And I think that's going to be something something like 350 kilowatts, so it'll be DC charging. They say a high-performance model based on this eGMP platform will accelerate from 0 to 100 k's an hour, which is 60 miles per hour. America, Brexit stand, places like that, within 3.5 seconds and have a VMAX of 260 kilometers an hour. So nothing boring about that. Components optimise driving dynamics and safety, they say, and also maximise cabin space. They say there's an integrated power electric system that includes the world's first multi-charging uh, system, which will accept uh, 400 volts and up to 800 volts and bi-directional power conversion as well, which means you can power household appliances and camping appliances and things of that nature. And the big announcement, I guess, is that 23 of these eGMP-based battery electric vehicle models will be introduced and the plan is to sell one million of them worldwide by 2025 which is kind of an ambitious plan it's not the first time though we've seen car makers say things of this nature nissan did it uh, memorably several years ago they had big plans for the leaf and look how well that worked out so what you're looking at now is this modular battery system in the overlay vision, which is kind of interesting as well, because that means the platform can grow up to a seven-seat SUV kind of size, and it can also be shrunk down to, uh, you know, a smaller vehicle as well. And all of those components in between the wheels, principally the battery, can be tailor-made in terms of its energy storage capacity to suit those vehicles. So all quite exciting really when you think about it and 
I guess the proof of the pudding here is going to be in the eating because at the moment, COVID-19 and all of those things, we've seen delays upon delays upon delays for both Hyundai and Kia and not just them. But it'll be interesting to see if they can get the supply infrastructure into gear to meet these targets by 2025. And if you're a regular viewer of the channel, you will have noticed that I did a pre-recorded package type report on the inefficiencies of design of EVs based on just the internal combustion derivative, right? So if you're deriving an EV from an internal combustion platform, it's kind of inefficient because of the compromises that you have to make. You get too much space in the engine bay and there's some suspension and mass distribution problems as well. And it's almost, frankly, as if I knew this was coming and... <laughs> And I decided to do that as a sort of precursor to today's announcement. Go figure. Perhaps it's just those strange mental powers. The, uh, the Just harking back to some of the interesting developments here on the press release and keeping track of this overlay at the same time, it's like being the presenter and the control room in a TV studio. Uh, Albert Bierman was in this presentation today and he spoke about a whole bunch of things. One of the most interesting of which is a bias towards rear-wheel drive with this platform, which is kind of exciting from a performance point of view, if you like that BMW-style ultimate driving machine rear-wheel drive thing. They're going to have all-wheel drive as well, and unlike a lot of all-wheel drive on-demand systems, it seems to be the front-wheel drive component that is going to be disconnected from time to time when it's an all-wheel drive platform. So rear-wheel drive most of the time, front-wheel drive when you want all-wheel drive. And no transmission tunnel, you know, none of that tunnel in the middle of the floor running longitudinally because... You don't need that, right? What you've got basically is a couple of electric motors. You've got an electric motor up the front, which you can turn on or off when you want all-wheel drive, and you've got the main drive component, which is just an electric motor down the back driving the rear axle, which is kind of clever as well. And if you're into performance driving, it's going to give you that pure uh, driving experience. And also there'll be optimization of the mass distribution and the cabin space and all of that kind of thing, which is pretty interesting they've also taken a big uh, leap with the charging okay and one of the things I just wanted to show you now is how that vehicle to load charging thing that they're bringing in is going to work okay so basically vehicle to load means that you could hypothetically have a solar array at home and you could charge your electric vehicle up during the day with the sun shining and then essentially you can use the electricity in the battery overnight if you want to or at least some of it to power some appliances in your home like air conditioning or uh, a television things of that nature you can even charge another EV so if uh, for whatever reason you need to give your second EV a bit of a boost and the sun's not shining and you've got one full and one nearly empty you can balance it up like that in terms of running home appliances though they say that we're going to be looking at something like 3.5 kilowatts worth of power there which is about one and a half domestic power outlets here in Australia it's about two and a half kilowatts maximum out of a standard 240 volt 10 amp wall outlet so you basically get 
two of those in your EV. And if you're connected to your home charger, I assume, you can figure that out electronically somehow so that you can power some of those units, which is quite clever as well. And it might put a dent in the need to purchase a second battery, you know, a, a stationary battery to augment your solar array, which is kind of exciting as well. You know, you could have potentially a couple of EVs doing this and have seven-ish kilowatts of electricity available for use in your home overnight. And then obviously tomorrow morning when the sun comes out, you could recharge your EV, right? And also run your home off the sunlight that's hitting the roof. So there's that. That will increase the modularity of sort of energy storage and reduce your dependency on the grid, which here in Australia is fairly filthy. Now, I just want to run past a couple of comments that uh, Albert Beerman said. And if you're not familiar with Mr. Beerman, he's the former boss of the M division for BMW. So he knows a thing or two about performance cars. And in the presentation today, Mr. Beerman basically said, They've done a whole bunch of things to optimise the efficiency of this EGMP platform for electric vehicles, right? But one of them that they didn't focus on specifically and for a reason is aerodynamics. And the interesting comments he made in the Q&A session about that was that if you concentrate just on aerodynamics, all cars start to look the same because obviously air is a viscous fluid and a car is a particular sized thing because you have to fit, you know, four or five people in it or seven or something. And then if you have to push it through the air efficiently and you want to maximise the efficiency, the shape has to conform to the demands of that efficiency. And they haven't gone this way with the next generation of what they're calling the brand Ionic, which is their, you know, uh, retail brand, I guess you'd call it for the Hyundai side of uh, Hyundai Motor Group. And basically that allows them, what, in, in paraphrasing his words, to build sexier electric vehicles. Okay, so we're not just going to make them look like they have to look to be slippery, they're going to be kind of sexy in keeping with this claim that they've got about launching a high-performance EV that will do 0 to 103 and a half seconds with a top speed of 260, which, frankly, doesn't sound too boring at all. I'm not sure how long it can run at 260, though. That'll be interesting uh, when that detail emerges because, obviously, one of the things about punting uh, any sort of shape you know, whatever it is, a shape like this through viscous air is that when you double the speed, the aerodynamic drag is going to go up by between a factor of four and eight. So if you're doing 100 k's an hour, you'll have a particular amount of range. But if you're doing 260, you've gone up by 2.6. So, you know, you, you're aerodynamic drag is going to go up between six or seven or eight or nine or something like that, isn't it? And that's going to have a profound impact on range. So you can have fun, but the more fun you have, the less range you're going to get. And this is not just an EV thing, right? This is also a liquid fuel thing. Your range diminishes with your speed because of the demands of aerodynamic drag and overcoming that drag. So there's that. Anyway, Mr. Beerman went on and said, today our front-wheel drive Hyundai and Kia battery electric vehicles are already among the most efficient ones in their segments. I guess you've got to say that so you don't talk the existing product down lest anybody be actively in the market for, I don't know, an Ionic or a Kona Electric right now. But he said, 
With our rear-wheel-driven-based eGMP, we are extending our technological leadership into segments where customers demand excellent driving dynamics and outstanding efficiency. And I guess this is a direction that he can now impose on the group because obviously he's kind of kicked a bit of a goal internally with the N cars like the i30N and the upcoming i20N. And now he's been given a bigger role. He's the president of, you know, design and development or something, whatever his title is. But anyway, he's the wheel who basically steers the ship when it comes to orientation of that kind of uh, direction. Okay. And he's prioritizing dynamics and performance, which is just fantastic, I guess. And obviously this won't just be an EV thing. It's going to be an overall group dynamics thing. So that's great. Uh, he goes on and says, EGMP is the culmination of years of research and development and brings together our most cutting edge technologies. Our battery electric vehicle lineup will evolve and be strengthened by this innovative new platform. So what they're basically concentrating on here is to make the platform and the components modular. So they've done a whole bunch of things. When, when you do that, you, you basically make the whole thing more efficient. So the electric side of things is lighter and it can go further within, uh, with the same battery capacity. And they're doing that by introducing some pretty innovative things, okay? Like in the motor itself, the electric motors that turn into generators that charge the battery on overrun, okay? They're changing the windings and they're using this hair clip kind of winding, which basically increases the density of the windings. So you get more windings per unit volume of windings. Okay. And what that does is it reduces resistive losses and shrinks the size of the motor that you need to get the job done. So that's pretty clever. And a lot of people talk about cooling for the batteries. I think uh, we, we all need to give Nissan a small round of applause for making us all aware of how important it is to cool the batteries because they didn't cool them effectively in the leaf and they fail early. So the batteries are cooled in all Hyundai EVs, as I understand it at the moment, and they're still cooled in this next generation of eGMP uh, platform, but the interesting thing is they're cooling the motor as well, and they're not using water to do it. Water's a particularly cool thing, in, in metaphorically and literally, to transfer heat. But in the case of the motor, they're using oil to achieve that cooling. So that's kind of interesting. Presumably, they pump the oil up the front where it gets airflow and uh, loses the heat inside the motor to atmospheric convection, uh, forced convection in the case of airflow, right? So that's kind of interesting as well. And uh, another interesting thing is crashworthiness, all right, because the crashworthiness demands of EVs are different than conventional cars. Obviously, you still need to protect the people, but you need to protect the battery as well because it's kind of vulnerable to external mechanical damage. And they've done that quite effectively as well by re-engineering the shape of the members up the front. And also building the battery enclosure in a hot stamped ultra high strength steel enclosure. And what this means is, okay, if I look up here now, I've got two dirty big steel beams about that deep protecting me from the rest of the house collapsing into the fat cave, right? And those steel beams have a tensile strength notionally of about 250 megapascals. 
the kinds of steel they use in these ultra high strength steel automotive applications really don't get enough of a run because they tend to be gigapascal steel, which is like four times stronger than the beams holding the building up that you're probably sitting in right now if you're in an office. Okay, so that's kind of clever. And in order to not destroy their mechanical properties when you manufacture them into different shapes, you have to heat them up to make them more malleable basically okay and then that's what when you see in a press release it says hot stamped high strength steel or hot stamped ultra high strength steel that's what that's all going on about and it really is a big deal metallurgically and from an engineering point of view and it's not the sexiest thing to focus on I know but it's kind of a big deal and very sexy if you are into that kind of engineering metallurgy domain I find it quite sexy not as sexy as a hot tub full of Ming moles but you know it's up there. So the other things they're talking about in the release, which uh, doubtless you can read, it'll be in a million places online, but they're talking about space optimization because the packaging is optimized and also the main component, which is the, the battery and also the electric motors down nice and low. And they're going to optimize the suspension geometry so that they can get the roll center of the car and the mass center of the car in a decent orientation vertically to one another so that they can get the roll performance they need and also the vertical bump compliance performance they need, which is important because you're controlling both of those things with the one set of suspension architecture being springs, dampers and bushes. And in all EVs derived from combustion engine cars, there's an inherent compromise in that orientation of the roll center and the mass center. You know, what they basically need to do with these EV specific platforms is drop the roll center so that the mass center in relation to that is still reasonably separated. And then you'll get decent roll performance when you drive around a corner and decent bump performance when you go into a dip or over a crest or hit a bump mid corner and things of that nature. And you don't get this phenomenon that I detailed last week called modal separation which is all you know quite important and look if you want to ask any questions about this kind of thing let me have it in the chat now because I'd be very interested to hear what you've got to say if you've got an observation about this new platform if you couldn't care less or if you're excited let me know how you feel about it Personally, I think it's very ambitious at this point in the middle of a pandemic to say we're going to sell a million battery EVs by 2025 because 2021, 2022, 2023, 2024, 25. They've got five years to do it, 200,000 a year. That's ambitious. So I'd be very interested to see if they can do that. I'd be interested to see how they roll it out, whether the supply is going to be constrained, if they're going to be able to build enough batteries because there's a lot of demand for batteries at the moment and that's going to place upward pressure on the component supply change. And while I was dialed into this video Q&A, there was obviously the opportunity to ask questions and I only asked one question, okay? I asked it twice and they declined to answer, which was, when do you see the price of internal combustion and electric vehicles converging? Because the price is one of the main barriers to the acquisition of an EV for many people. It's just so much more expensive, right? And obviously, they're going to have an economies of scale and efficiency benefit from this platform architecture. 
the economies of scale will extend to selling a greater volume of EVs and obviously the unit cost will of production will be reduced as a consequence of just doing it more because that's how this works. The efficiency means there'll be less battery required for a particular performance objective, right? Because less of the energy in the battery will be wasted to energy losses through inefficiency. But they declined to answer the question about when it's going to be foreseeable for the prices of internal combustion and battery to converge. And I guess that means foreseeably never. At least that's how I'm inferring that that answer. I mean, it's if I were doing a press conference and somebody asked a question like that that I could punt because I didn't want the other 60 people who were dialed in to get some sort of heads up about that, that's how I'd play it too. But you want to be aware of that. One of the principal barriers to acquisition of electric vehicles, which is the price, is unlikely to be solved by this, but it could be pretty exciting too, you know? And it could be giving Electric Jesus finally a bit of a run for his money on the one unique selling proposition of Tesla, aside from it's a cult, okay? The the real unique selling proposition for Tesla is excitement and performance. Like, I've driven the Model S, and there's nothing wrong with it from a performance point of view. I mean, it feels like a big, heavy, high-performance saloon, which is what it is, all right? Kind of silent but deadly in many ways. I haven't driven the Model 3 performance, but we did a road test for Channel 7, and it was pretty exciting to drive the Model S, and I really get the feeling like these Ionic cars, Ionic 5, Ionic 3, Ionic 7, they're going to give Tesla a run for the money because it's going to be rear-wheel drive, pure driving experience. And the dude at the helm ran the BMW M division, who was essentially responsible for carrying the can for BMW's reputation as ultimate driving machine. So if anyone can do that, it'd be big beerman, right? And therefore not a happy day for Electric Jesus. The other thing I should tell you is this is not just Hyundai News. It also extends, this platform will extend into the other two Hyundai Motor Group brands, which would be Kia and Genesis. It's going to be interesting for Australia to see how many of these vehicles we can procure from the global production, because obviously there's not a real incentive to get the vehicles here, like a governmental incentive. There's no corporate average fuel economy standards for Australia, and that means manufacturers don't have to meet particular consumption and or emissions targets to uh, keep operating here. And other markets, they do have to do that. So they might get preference if these vehicles are supply limited. Anyway, I thought given the timeliness of this announcement and the fact that it is kind of a big deal and it could upend Electric Jesus, which is always a happy day for me, I thought I'd just go live to you now and lay that out and then I would uh, basically seek your feedback on all of this stuff. We'll get into some of your comments right now. Evil Bunny. <laughs> I love these names. Nothing says my parents hated me. Mr. and Mrs. Bunny hated me. They called me evil. Uh, and make electric space flight possible. Well, I guess the, the one thing about electric space flight is you don't have to burn anything. That's what you've got to carry your own oxygen for rocket powered space flight. If you just carry batteries, then hey, I guess so. You've also got plenty of solar energy, haven't you? Up there. So thanks a lot, Evil. 
appreciate that. Uh, Matthew Russell now says, oh, no, that's just a bit of conversation. This is the problem without having a moderator. I might have to invest in a moderator for this. Uh, Matthew Russell again says, would you consider the ionic uh, ice converted to BEV or a BEV converted to ice? I think the Hyundai Ionic, as opposed to the brand Ionic, which they're going to launch, I think the Hyundai Ionic is a derivative of internal combustion. Okay, you can buy plug-in hybrid, for example, and I think a lot of the architecture is borrowed from a vehicle, which if I had to take a punt, and it's been a while since I looked at Ionic, but I'd suggest it was probably borrowed uh, extensively from the i30 and Serato platform. So there's that. Across the ocean says, John, you have some major Homer when he found the glasses in the toilet vibes going on. I was trying to channel a little bit more Drew Carey. See, one of the problems with becoming older is you lose the ability to focus close up. So when I'm sitting over there reading the prompter and doing a pre-recorded package, dude, I can read the prompter all day long without the glasses, right? But up here reading the chat, which is just there. Well, I just need longer arms or I can get the computer behind the camera possibly and read it like that or just wear the glasses. Does it matter? Do we really, is that the thing that we need to talk about? You're wearing glasses, channeling Homer? Anyway, uh, Paul Fun. Paul's always good for a bit of criticism here. Single motor Cybertruck is 40 grand cheaper than a Honda CRV. The problem with the Cybertruck, as I see it, is that show me the money, like show me the production version, okay? Because the one that we saw in that appalling sideshow, that freak show launch of the Cybertruck seemingly years ago now where they broke the window with the baseball and all of that stuff, it's unregisterable. It's unhomologatable. You know, you can't make it meet existing FMV SSs, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards in the US, and the UN ECE regulations or our ADRs, which are also derivatives generally of both of those standards. So show me how the cyber truck that we've seen Elon Musk present can actually be used legally on the road. And if memory serves, Electric Jesus is also on the record saying that it won't come to some markets. And I'm tipping at 100 miles an hour that we will not see the Cybertruck in Australia. And if you see the Cybertruck actually debut on the road anywhere, it's going to be substantially different than the Cybertruck you saw in that, pre in that presentation at the quote-unquote launch the, the the ultimate elon musk prick tease okay i'm not seeing it i remain an e electric jesus skeptic okay because he's made so many frankly bullshit announcements that anybody else would have his friggin credibility in the marianas trench by now when he said publicly that he was going to take the company private and he'd secured the funds. And let's not forget, the SEC found him guilty of misleading the public as a result of that and slapped him with a huge fine. And he's got a track record of just shooting from the hip and going off the reservation and every other metaphor like that you can think of. I'll believe the cyber truck when I see it. And you know, I'd be very surprised if we ever see one registered on the road in Australia. So there's that. Uh, let's keep going now with some of your 
content. Uh, Peter Gray says, why isn't the humble station wagon the platform of choice for electric vehicles? I'd love a Hyundai EN station wagon. Well, yeah, but you're in the minority, mate. People who want station wagons, station wagons, they buy EVs. Uh, sorry, they buy SUVs. And this EGMP EV platform is going to be SUV compatible. It's not like station wagons have disappeared. It's just that they've morphed into, into SUVs. And the cool thing about this architecture is that you stretch the wheelbase a bit and you jam a bigger battery in there and the mass goes up and you can put seven seats in there, but you've still got your EV and it's a wagon. And in many ways, it's more practical than the old style station wagon. So all of you dudes romanticizing the past when you were a kid and you were in the family station wagon, I'd really like to get like a Kingswood station wagon or a Falcon station wagon and park it next to a Santa Fe or a CX-9 or a Sorento or a vehicle of that nature. And for starters, seven seats versus five big advantage, right? And if you looked at the vehicles generally in terms of their size and capabilities and performance and economy and dimensions overall, things have improved. And this romanticizing the station wagon, like it's over <laughs> and it's, and it's not the market, it's you. Okay. You just have to adapt and say, People don't want that anymore. And that's why car makers don't make them. Because if people wanted them, they'd frigging make them. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Let's move on. Sailing Miss Daisy says, The man in the street will be able to afford an electric car when governments have worked out how to make us pay. I don't know exactly what that means, but there is going to be a debate, I'm certain, about the subsidisation of EVs. And this is an important issue in line with climate debates generally. We need to think about the environment's a better way of thinking about it. Clean air in our cities, very important. Energy security for the nation, very important. Averting climate catastrophe extremely important. We need to have a rational debate led by technical experts focused on the facts about policies into the future so that we can achieve what we want, which is a better environment for future generations of humans. S certainly, right? I don't want to go back to I don't want to be here in 10 years' time thinking, you know what? The death toll in our cities from dirty air has increased. That would be terrible and it would be a massive double standard because we've got all of these resources devoted to preventing road trauma, okay? But clean air in our cities, like forget about it, dude. We don't have a policy about that. And dirty air in our cities kills prematurely about three times as many Australians as road trauma, right? And we need to align these things. And I'm not just talking about climate change. I'm talking about, you know, measurable safety in terms of air quality in our cities and EVs can be a huge benefit to us all there right they can but we don't have policies and partly this is because we've got a prime minister who goes into parliament carrying big fat lump of coal telling everyone how good it is right now if that's not morally reprehensible and deserving of public shaming endlessly by the electorate, I don't know what is. Because when I drive around my suburb, here's what I see. 
I look left and I look right as I drive around and I see every man and his dog having fitted a solar array to their roof. Okay. And they're doing that because they care about the environment. They certainly care more than the representatives we elect to change the joint for better. And this is in part why I made this up as a joke, okay? Because in America, you can get away with going, make America great again. I really don't see that we can get away with anything and with our credibility intact more than make Australia less shit because it's fairly shit at the moment and I'd suggest that the fish rots from the head on down and at the moment our elected representatives are letting us down on air quality action, climate action, energy security action. It's all just bullshit rhetoric and no action. We don't have policies and we need to have policies about EVs. I'll get off my soapbox now, put down my excellent prototype hat and get back to your chat. I do like that hat. Kylas, Kylas McManus says, when you can fill up a charging station as fast as refueling, they will be far more attractive to buy. Long distance drivers are not going to adopt. I agree with you in as much as EVs are particularly suited to city type driving with occasional long hauls at the moment. That's just how it plays, right? I've been driving a Kona Electric for about 7,000 Ks now, and I've got a 32 amp single phase charger, which charges up at, don't quote me, seven and a half, I think it is, kilowatts. So it'll charge the thing from dead flat overnight, no problem. And to me, that works just fine. And if I had to stop after 450 Ks and empty my own long range tank and plug into a fast charger for 45 minutes or an hour to get enough range to go for the next hop, then I'd sit down, have a burger, check my emails, do something of that nature, take a break from the driving. But I agree, if you're a routine long distance driver, then EVs are not the perfect solution. They're not the perfect solution currently in our cities either. We need to work out all kinds of infrastructure issues, such as if you've got a boutique apartment in the eastern suburbs of Sydney or some elite suburb somewhere else in the nation and you've got a whole bunch of rich dudes who wear their green credentials, you know, up here on their chest and they bought their EV, their EGMP, their Tesla, whatever. If they all drive home from the office at the same time and coalesce back where, they, uh, where they're domiciled, you know, and they all plug in and good luck supplying seven and a bit kilowatts to them and also running the air conditioning in the apartment, turning the television on, putting the lights on and all of that stuff. We don't have the local supply infrastructure to meet those charging demands. And the best they can do at the moment is balance up the loads so you don't, you know, trip every breaker in the building, right? We've got the generation capacity. I worked that out the other day. If every vehicle, if I got Harry Potter's wand or even better, the Harry Potter's wand upgrade, the Mighty King 46mm slogging spanner. Yes. If I got that and magically changed every car in the nation to an EV tomorrow, then I think we'd have to generate something like 10 or 15% more electricity. So to me, that's doable. We could just increase a raise on the roof or something or, you know, build a couple more power stations, put a couple of big solar or wind farms out there. That's not a project to rival 
snowy hydro. It's just not. Okay, we could do that. What we've got is a local uh, electricity supply logjam, and we can't supply the power locally if everyone comes home and plugs in their big fat seven seat EGMP uh, slash Tesla, whatever. That's a bit of a problem. So there's that. Uh, Jason Sexton says, no Elon fanboy, but you uh, but you have watched Munro and Associates tear down of the Model 3. No, I have not. I did see them tear down the Model S, and my uh, conclusion from that was that the Model S has some good electrical technology, but the car could, the actual car that the Model S comprises could be made a whole bunch more efficiently. But I haven't seen the, the teardown of the Model 3, so really can't comment on that. Perhaps I will. Uh, what about wading through water and EV, says Sambo Elliott? Well, the battery's sealed, dude. I don't see there being a problem. Like, there's, there's a big problem with uh, water and machinery generally, and the battery is out there at the bottom of the car, right? There's no reason it cannot be sealed against uh, fording water in the case of a four-wheel drive, you know? They mix coolant inside. There's coolant flowing through the battery as well. When you see a battery, I've seen the battery pack of the Kona Electric apart on the floor, and there's... It's a big, solid metal enclosure with a filthy, great neoprene kind of rubber, whatever, butyl, whatever, rubber gasket. And it's pretty hard for me to see that failing from the point of view of keeping it sealed from, for example, a water crossing anytime soon. And water crossings to me are not the biggest problem with water sort of down there, because if you drive through a puddle at 100 k's an hour, you're going to create a water jet at at least 100 k's an hour as the tyres struggle to displace all of that water really fast without aquaplaning the car, which is their function after all. And EVs are nice and heavy. They're going to sit down into the puddle. So you're going to have these high-pressure water jets with a lot of uh, momentum, inertia, energy, whatever you think, uh, whatever term suits, you know. And you need to make the systems that comprise the EV, all of the high-voltage wiring, you need to make it resist all of those sort of splashing effects as well. So, you know, durability is a big problem in R&D, and you've got to get it right but I don't see it being up there with a mission to Mars. It's all doable. And ultimately, at the end of the day, with an SUV, what they would do is quote a wading depth and battery durability, integrity, all of that stuff would be part of the R&D process. And to me, that doesn't seem like the biggest challenge when it comes to EVs, frankly. It just doesn't. Now, the N.W. Perry says the electric supply systems develop alongside the load requirement. That's true. It's a supply and demand thing. I actually think the load requirement increases first and then they figure out how to do it. It's like the demand for a lot of other things. So the demand leads the uh, network development, I think. Uh, he goes on and says utilities will adapt to the system load over time. As the uptake increases, so will the supply and the method of distribution. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And, of course, one of the most efficient ways to distribute the electricity is to just make it upstairs, right, on a solar array and then figure out some way of storing it. Presumably, you could even store it in a bunch of EVs that were plugged in uh, if you're allegedly working from home <laughs> during a pandemic or something. And then, you know, that electricity can be used during the evening, whatever. So 
we may not see large-scale macro network distribution upgrades. What we might see is much more local power production because it seems to me that we've still got a hell of a lot of north-facing uh, roof area in Sydney, for example, that could be uh, upgraded to, to suit the demand. So we could do that and then we just have to figure out a way of um, figuring out how to supply the needs at night time because that's when typically we're all at home and consuming, right? Christopher Dobby now says, could there be a liquid solution swap out battery? I don't know what you mean by liquid solution. The batteries are already liquid cooled, Christopher, but certainly, you know, batteries could be swapped out hypothetically, but it's a little bit different to changing the battery in a power tool because of the amount of energy that you're transferring, the resistance of the contacts, the need to keep it waterproof. And let's not forget, if we were going to have a swap out battery program, what we would need is modularity between brands. We'd need Tesla to talk to Hyundai and we'd need Tesla and Hyundai to talk to Volkswagen and vice versa and all agree on a battery module that could be swapped out. And once you get peace in the Middle East sorted out with your negotiation, you might want to figure out how to make car makers talk to each other. Because in terms of the degree of difficulty, I'd suggest they're in that order. Okay, uh, So I see that as being an insurmountable opportunity. And the other thing about modularity is when you see one of these battery packs apart on the floor, and in fact, when you look at them, I might even have a shot here like this that we can look at while I talk about it. Um, when you when you look at the way these batteries are constructed okay you can see that each one of these little rectangular blocks here in between the wheels that that's a bank of cells and they they're they're even more modular in that those those individual rectangular modules are comprised of individual cells and therefore as the batteries age if one of the cells goes bad as it were that can be diagnosed and changed out without having to replace the entire battery pack which is a really positive development for the future see I'm a little bit sceptical about Nissan with the Leaf when they say, oh, we've got this battery exchange program where you've got reduced range as a result of some cells going bad and we'll remanufacture the battery. They're just doing that, changing an individual cell or a number of individual cells and then charging you through the neck for it. And I think it's much more ethical for a car maker to go, we will diagnose your battery 10 years down the track, eight years down the track, whatever it is. We will diagnose your battery and replace those cells and balance it all up and that will cost you less and your EV will last longer. Because let's not forget, if we're doing something in the environmental domain, you've got to think about the waste, right? Disposing of this vehicle early, disposing of this battery early. What are the implications for longevity? Because if you can make an EV last for 15 years and still be a desirable product, then that's much more palatable environmentally, ethically, morally for the future of humanity than it is to just replace this EV in six or seven years' time or something, right? And, and these are not necessarily the objectives of car makers generally, right? They don't want to see you hang on to a car for 15 years. They want you to upgrade every couple of years, every three years, whatever. But it's important for that product to have a reasonable lifespan on the road because that is a major environmental issue. If you buy a shitbox leaf back, whatever it is, eight, nine years ago or something, and 
the battery carks it early and the replacement cost of the battery exceeds the value of the vehicle. It's uneconomical to repair. So what do you do? You junk it. And when you throw that vehicle away, all of the energy embodied in its manufacture just gets thrown away. We don't do a particularly good job here in Australia with recycling cars. I mean, they're very good at producing cars with all of the symbols on it about the materials. What sort of plastic is this and what sort of material is that, blah, blah, blah. But we're not really good at pulling them apart and actually doing the recycling of the material. We need to get better at that and we need to keep cars on the road for longer. And what if we if we care about the environment, if we care about the sustainability of resources, okay? Like all of the hydrocarbon resources we use to make plastic, it's better if those plastics get used for longer because then the finite resource of hydrocarbons, you know, crude oil effectively, is extended into the future for longer. And I'd really like to see car makers, including the big ones, you know, Hyundai, Kia and Toyota and all of the big car manufacturers, the Volkswagen Group, Good luck with that. I'd love to see them put a little bit more effort into upgrades of existing models. So let's say I've got a five-year-old Hyundai i30. I would love to take it back to the dealer and buy a contemporary upgrade pack. You know, even a 10-year-old car, a contemporary upgrade pack where I got better this and better that and whatever but I've got the same fundamental architecture rolling on the ground, okay? And to me, this is just a commercial opportunity that the car industry doesn't even look at. It's like they've got blinkers on. It's like, got to sell new cars, got to sell new cars, got to sell new cars. And they don't think about all of the thousands of people out there on the road driving, you know, contemporary average age cars, which are eight or nine, ten years old in Australia. If we could upgrade them, I'd love to go back to the factory, as it were, and just get an upgrade pack where I could lunch off some of the recent developments. I mean, obviously, some developments need to be incorporated at a platform level, but I'd love to see, you know, brake upgrades, safety technology upgrades, adaptive cruise upgrade. These things are just hardware that can be bolted in and calibrated generally, and wouldn't that be fantastic? And what a money-making opportunity for car makers as well. So there's that. Uh, that's a bit of a rant from me. I don't know why they can't do that, but apparently it's all too hard. Uh, Toothless now says, Hi, John. Nissan is at it again with the Leaf here in New Zealand. An older lady had to get fair go. I guess that's their consumer affairs mob across the ditch on the case to find out the condition of its battery. Yeah, this is one of the things I see across the board at dealerships here in Australia is that a lot of dealerships, they know it's likely to be a consumer law issue, but they want to charge you 300 bucks or 500 bucks up front to diagnose the problem, right? And to me, that's just a cash grab. And it's, it's a cash grab in the moment, right? They go, oh, give me 300 bucks and we'll diagnose it. But my faith in the company would go off the cliff as soon as I was presented with an ultimatum of that nature. And car makers are especially bad and dealers are especially bad at realising how badly the faith in the brand gets treated at the service department because you can fall in love with a car online, all right? 
You can fall in love with a car in the flesh, and certainly that's what a test drive is about. You think it's there so that you can see if the car is right for you. Uh-uh. The only, de- the only reason the dealer is putting the test drive on the table for you is so that you can get in that car and feel it up and fall in lust, okay? That's the test drive. You are far more likely to buy a car that you have test driven. After you test drive, you are so much closer to signing on the dotted line, to being, you know, King Dick prodded <laughs> to the table, signing and paying that deposit and being locked up with that car. That's what the test drive is. So you fall in lust in this process online, you read the reviews, you go on test drive and it all boils over the deposits there and you're in love with the car. You get divorced in the service department, right? Invariably, you know, because if you're happy, you've been treated okay, you just buy another one. You go, yeah, that i30N's been fantastic. Sign me up again. I've worn this one out. I want to do me some more A-grade thrashing. I'll buy the next one. Okay. But if they treat you badly in the service department, you go, I'm not ever setting foot in this place again, right? And car makers need to do better at that in competitive environments because it's not like they're the only game in town. You can just go and shop down the road a bit and buy a competing brand that produces essentially exactly the same driving qualities that led you to fall in love with this one. So yeah, I think, you know, car makers need to do a lot better at going, you know what? Our Nissan Leaf has a problem. Our Ford Power Shit transmission has a problem. Our Toyota 2.8 diesel DPF system has a problem. And we're going to treat you like we're sorry rather than just try and cash in. That's, that would be a real improvement in the commercial landscape, at least to me. Adrian Romano now says, Hi, John, what is your opinion and thoughts on manual DPF regeneration buttons and switches, such as on Toyota diesels? Is a manual regeneration as good as a highway regeneration? There's no reason why manual regen is not just as good as highway regen because the process is really simple, okay? It's just inject fuel into the DPF, which is a big stainless steel box about this big, and it's got filter material in it, and you inject the fuel in, it burns because the exhaust flow is hot, and it turns the, the, the box into a furnace, right? The car doesn't have to be moving to do that. It's just that, you know, it makes the process easier to automate by computer if the car is driving at those low-load, easy-cruising sort of highway speeds in that 50 to 70 mile an hour, sort of 80 to 120 k an hour range. If you want to have manual regeneration, they do it on trucks all the time. And let's not forget, trucks are much more expensive components than cars. And the systems and the fuel quality and the engines, they're they're all much more expensive. So if you can manually regenerate the DPF in a truck, you can manually regenerate it in a car. The problem is dickhead factor, okay? Because having manual regeneration capability is in theory fine, except if you're a dickhead. Because if you're a dickhead, what you do is you go into the garage and you manually regenerate and then you walk around for a bit and you wake up dead because you gassed yourself with carbon monoxide. That's bad. And Or you just manually regenerate and someone calls out at you for assistance and you run into the house and go upstairs and you become embroiled in fixing some shit, whatever it is, and then everyone dies from carbon monoxide poisoning, right? So 
that's the downside to opening the door to leaving the engine running in this energetic combustion way because you know shit happens and people could gas themselves easily if they don't stick to the plan so i i would be i would be a big fan of seeing warnings from hell about manual regeneration come up because jesus it's it's potentially very dangerous right evil bunny now says the upgrade route is what air forces are doing for decades yeah they they are because F-A-18s and planes of this nature, if they were cars, they would have been pensioned off donkeys years ago. Black Hawk helicopters, ditto. I'm sure Sikorsky could make themselves a better Black Hawk now. And if it was the car industry, we would have had four more generations of troop deployment helicopters. But instead, they do upgrade all of those capabilities and they bolt in new technology because it's cost-effective. Excuse me, it's cost effective. And, you know, the the end customers, i.e. government, you know, nation states, demand that kind of upgradability. That's an extremely good point, which I hadn't considered. Uh, uh, Mr. Evil still goes on and says, I agree that would be nice if the initial frame is solid. It certainly would. And to me, it's a missed opportunity. Nasir, uh, sorry, Yasir unpronounceable says the new report for carbon emissions in Europe indicated that the carbon emission uh, plug-in hybrid electric vehicle cars are higher than internal combustion uh, engine cars. Considering the heavy regulations in Europe, what is your take on EVs of the future? This is back to my point about we need to have a really intelligent, expert-led, fact-based policy debate about environmental solutions for transport. Because the car industry is not altruistic in as far as I can see. The car industry is about selling cars. And consumers are altruistic. And many consumers who buy EVs are altruistic about the environment. And I get that. Hashtag respect. What we need is an independent fact-based system where we can verify whether or not EVs are in fact a huge environmental benefit or not. And to my knowledge, we haven't had that. What we have instead, and all communications online are like this now, information is bipolar. What you've got is all of these pro-EV blogs telling you this, and then you've got anti-EV commentators telling you that. And the facts have to be somewhere in the middle because EV evangelists are not likely to acknowledge the negatives. And EV detractors are unlikely to acknowledge the positives. And what we need to do is get in the middle. And we need to say, in order to achieve the future that we want, the air quality that we want in 10 years in our cities, the environmental protection that we want, the resource uh, protection that we want, because resources are not open-ended. You can't mine and uh, exploit resources infinitely. So what we need to do is we not we need to not bugger the joint up for the future, essentially. And that means we need the best brains in the business, unencumbered by political influence this way or that way, to actually come up with the facts so that governments we elect to enact policies in support of us, okay, they need to do that in an ethical way. And I sound like such a friggin' idealist here. And I despair, frankly, for the future because I don't see the likes of ScoMo or the other mob who are equally hopeless. I don't see either political party doing that. I see them 
appeasing vested interests to the extent that they can and paying lip service to you and me in the public. And this is why politics sucks, basically. So that's uh, that's my view on that. I, I'd love to know what you think. The Enforcer 007 says, what's the go with several manufacturers looking at integrating photovoltaic cells into roof bonnet area, into vehicles and trucks to increase the range and charge while parked at the shops and work, etc.? I'd say that's um, consumer appeasing bullshit because incident sunlight on a bright sunny day in the middle of summer is about one kilowatt per square metre. So if you've got, let's be kind, two square metres of total roof or uh, bonnet area that you can devote to solar cells, you have to produce them, you have to integrate them so that they're robust and the conversion efficiency is about 20%, so your two square metres is two kilowatts of incident light, and you'll only get about 400 watts of actual usable generated electricity from that, and you have to park in the sun to achieve that, and if you do that for four hours, you get uh, 1.6 kilowatt hours. The battery in the cone is 64 kilowatt hours, so that's about one fortieth of the total capacity, one fortieth of the total range, which would be 10 kilometres. And to me, that's just not worth doing, dude, because you'd be better to have a big solar array at the supermarket or on your home and just plug in there because you've got more area. Photovoltaic cells on the roofs of cars and the bonnets of cars might be okay for driving a heat pump to stop the interior getting so hot while the car is parked. That's about it. I don't see them doing any other sort of meaningful job in terms of boosting the range in a way that offsets the additional cost and the R&D complexity of actually putting the cells there in the first place. So it's a nice idea until you overlay it in the domain of facts, okay? Uh, at least that's how I see it. John Hart now says, Government rebates and tax relief would help. My Model 3 incurred $30,000 of, of tax sales and GST and luxury car tax. That's right, John. It would help. It would help you. But I would suggest respectfully that we need to not think about this in terms of helping you because you're a rich dude. You just bought a Model 3, and the people who buy new cars generally are rich. They're society's more affluent people. That's who car makers target, even in the cheap seats, even for a $25,000 car like an i30 or something, right? These people are socioeconomically above average, well above average. Average people don't buy new cars. That's just how it is, even though new cars have never been more affordable. So this debate about helping you I don't see that as being the role of government. Do we need to help you? No. What we need to do is we need to increase air quality in our cities. We need to increase energy security for our nation. We need to not root the environment for future generations of humanity. And what we specifically don't need to do with taxpayer funds is help the rich because the rich have already helped themselves. They're not in need of help. Like, you're a rich dude, John. And... I bought a bunch of new cars this year too. I bought two new cars. I dropped $100,000 on cars, okay? And the bottom line there is I don't want a government handout. You know, if I'd bought an EV, I don't want a government handout to help me. The only debate is, should we make EVs more affordable because they help air quality in our cities and improve things generally for the electorate, right? For the population. Uh, as for helping the rich, 
what we need to do is help the socioeconomically disadvantaged. It'd be great to get the health system pumping a little bit harder. I think you'd agree and really help people who are doing it tough. I'd like to see our returned servicemen who've, who've served in some pretty challenging situations and who will likely be scarred for life, you know. Uh, I'd like to see them helped. I'd also like to see other emergency services types who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder I'd love to see them help better. And a whole bunch of disadvantaged people in society, I want to see them helped. As for helping the rich, you're already getting the help you need because you've got um, enough money. <laughs> Lon Willis says, no Cleveland Cavaliers hat. I am a fan of the Cavaliers hat because of the big C and... I often think it leads uh, it leaves itself open to interpretation. I, I don't know the teams, you know, it's not my thing, but... The uh, the hat, I, I think there are some car makers who see that hat and they go, yes, he is one. And I think there are some fans who look at that and go, yeah, yeah, I can see that, you know. The, the hat's just a thing. It's like a gag, a running gag, like the Shredinger's Cat t-shirt from time to time or the one with Maxwell's equations about God said diff partial close couple differential equation and there was light. Because he had to say that, otherwise there wouldn't be friggin' light, would there? because them's the rules kind of thing. Anyway, Jonathan Kirkman now says, with the amount of power used by an automotive uh, fridge and freezer in regards to running on solar, it will never suffice. I don't know what the it is there, Jonathan. It's kind of interesting, actually. The press kit that Hyundai put out, I'll just see if I can't uh, make the press kit happen momentarily, because it did talk in terms of the amount of uh, lifespan from that intelligent um, charging system. And here am I trying to find that. I think it said words the effect of um, running a fridge overnight. Uh, the bi-directional charging system, and then they raved on about um, efficient and powerful electrical. Uh, EGM, EGMP offers 800 volts of charging, and then you can do that. And unlike, oh, here we go. Here's the bit. Onboard chargers, which typically only allow electricity to flow in a single direction from an external power source, the ICCU, which is the onboard charging thing, enables a new vehicle to load function, which can additionally discharge energy to the vehicle or battery without additional components. The battery, this enables battery electric vehicle based on EGMP to operate other electrical machinery at 240 volts AC. The system can even be used to charge another EV, and I think there's a picture of that. Oh, here we go. Let's have a look at that. So, yeah, they're saying electronics and home charging. I did see something about you know, running a TV overnight or an air conditioner for three and a half hours or something of that nature. But if you're talking about using solar panels on the roof to do the whole um, off-road fridge, etc. thing... I think it's actually going to be impractical as well because, as you say, there's a fair bit of current draw from a fridge overnight, and let's not forget it. You want the you want the fridge to run overnight, and the cells in the roof and on the bonnet. Well, it's going to be dark outside, dude. So that's not going to be much help. The best you can hope with a solar panel on the roof of a four-wheel drive is to charge up a dual battery system. And frankly, you could use the spare generating capacity of your alternator to do that as you drive along. It really only helps if you parked up camping for several days. You could make enough electricity to charge up the battery doing that, I think. So, look, we'll just do another few questions here and hopefully we'll end on a high note. But we've been going for about an hour now and we've probably thrashed this to death 
the enforcer's back. He says, cheers for the info and reply, JC. My pleasure. Um, what about the roof area on road train trailers for trucks and as a hell of a lot of panels could be fitted? Yeah, they could, but it's the cost, dude. And trucking's such a competitive industry. And what are you going to do with that power in the trucks? You'd have to carry a battery to store it and then you'd have to decant it somehow. I actually think the great unused, untapped potential for solar arrays is on northeast sort of facing roofs in Australia, right, where they're not currently being exploited as photovoltaic arrays because the structure's already there. We just have to fit the cells, right, and integrate them into the grid. To me, this seems like the easiest win. And when you're looking at other, you know, horizontal platforms, you'd have to keep them clean. Like on a truck, you'd have to get up there and wash them to, in, to, to maintain their conversion efficiency. So... All of this stuff is a nice idea until you drill down into the engineering complexity of what's the benefit and how do we actually make this functional in the long term. Let's not also forget that the cells themselves would be reasonably heavy on the top of a trailer for a B-double or a semi-trailer. And what the trucking industry is trying to do is maximise payload capacity, which is a zero-sum game. And that means that every trailer fitted with a photovoltaic array would be able to carry less freight. So that would be a major disadvantage. Now, Feral Man says germ... Th oh, yeah, let's not forget. Let's forget about that conspiracy theory. Feral Man's actually been prolific lately in the comments. Well done, Mr. Feral. Uh, James Barry. It's always, not always, it's generally people with an actual name, isn't it, who ask the best questions and make the best comments. There is some correlation there. James Barry. Hi, John. My local super cheap auto doesn't stock any 2020 FO. Any suggestions where I might find it? 2020 FO? I'll have to update. <laughs> I've only got about 29 more sleeps where this would be appropriate and then 2020 will FO and I'll have to formulate a brand new batch that's year specific for 2021 because I get the feeling like 2021 might kick off slightly better than 2020 but it's still going to be a little bit shit. Plenty of opportunity back there in the domain of making Australia less shit. Okay, so this is the only bottle in existence. And someone, some of you did actually reach out to the marketing dudes at WD40 on my behalf. And I'd have to say thank you if you were one of those people who did that. And the response from them was like, the Iron Curtain, deafening silence. So there's that. Not entirely unexpected. I think this is a one step too far for the brand. But of course, this is in no way meant to represent an actual WD-40 product. It's clearly much better than that with many more uses. And, you know, the Ming Moles and I worked out the formulation at great length in the hot tub one afternoon. It was quite therapeutic. Now, AJ847.63, which is almost a Star Trek reference, isn't it? It says the M... Oh, God... Another one of these conspiracy theory nuts. The Brujo says alternators are a fun topic in the van life community. So many people kill them by drawing high amps at low RPM. Heat, death, fixed fans are the devil. Yes. Well, you know, the RV community is a very interesting subset of the population because they're like um, emblematic of intellectual toxicity, obviously, because one of the things about the RV community is 
you, and I'm generalizing here, and certainly not everyone in the RV community is like this, but I noticed this philosophically among a substantial group of commenters in various forums, etc., in the RV community, is that having actual knowledge or training or experience in technical fields is not a prerequisite to being a beard-stroking expert in the RV community. And it leads to some really interesting suggestions about how this works or that works. And I had one guy memorably, I did a video about it. I had one guy suggest that you could put like a fan, as in like a, a, a wind-driven turbine, out of the roof of your caravan and make enough electricity to charge up the battery without incurring any fuel consumption penalty, which is like, words fail me. You could obviously put a turbine up there and you could produce electricity. You just can't do it without drawing, you know, consuming additional fuel because of the nature of friggin' thermodynamics. That's how this works. And it's not a real effective way to do it, is it? Because you're taking petrol and you're pro or diesel, whatever, and you're processing it through an engine to give you forward velocity to beat all of those resistances. And then you're going to put a fan up and generate electricity with the energy that's left over. There's this thing called the second law of thermodynamics that says every time you do a process, you lose available energy. So if you've got a 15-step process to drive a wind turbine, that's not as good as a one-step process. Like you could just burn fuel and make electricity and use that to recharge the battery, which is, of course, why the friggin' car industry puts alternators in cars instead of a big array of fans on the leading edge of the roof or something to generate electricity that way, because it's just a more efficient way of producing the, more, the, the amount of electricity you require. So anyway, look, I think we'll end it there because uh, my voice is packing it in, as you can probably hear, but... I'd like to thank you sincerely for listening to the whole eGMP Hyundai uh, platform announcement and I appreciate your well-thought-out comments in the chat feed and obviously I didn't get to you all. I never do because there's a frigging tsunami. But I do thank you sincerely for participating today and more live streams to come. I'll try and give you enough notice. I might even get to the point where there's absolute regularity and you can sound like a Metamucil ad, don't I? But absolute regularity, and you'll be able to say, ah, lunchtime live streams on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, or something of that nature, and you'll know to tune in. But anyway, if you want to know when the next live stream is, please nudge that subscribe button and hit the bell notification icon, and then Google will stalk you to the end of the earth and fire up a desktop notification every time I go live. Anyway, it's Wednesday, the 2nd of December, uh, 2.39, nearly 2.40 here in the knee of Sid in the eastern seaboard of Australia. Christ knows where you are, but I thank you for your participation this afternoon, and I'll look forward to catching up with you next time. Have a good one.